It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. On the web, it's 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, I'm Robert Polly, welcoming you back to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm assuming you've been here before. And on today's show, an interview with the comedian Mark Marin. He's made a name in stand-up comedy going back, oh, about 20 years. He's known for his psychologically astute, unsparing, and frequently dark sense of humor. Well, recently he's won a bunch of new fans with his podcast. It's called What the F***. I'll abbreviate it as WTF from now on. It's a totally homemade affair, usually recorded in Mark's garage in L.A., and it consists of conversations with fellow comedians and other creative showbiz types like Judd Apatow, Ben Stiller, Robin Williams, Sarah Silverman, and lots more. He's even interviewed Ira Glass. The talk is not only funny, but it is often raw and really revealing. Mark spills his own guts, and a lot of his guests do too. WTF has been going on for only about a year and a half, but it has become one of the most listened to podcasts around. And it's been getting a lot more attention recently with some glowing coverage in Rolling Stone and the New York Times. Mark typically begins his show with a monologue. He'll describe some current personal struggle or some recent event in his life. And sometimes he'll talk about his tangled relationship with the person he's about to interview. For example, when he spoke to his old friend and fellow comedian Louis C.K., Here's a bit of what Mark had to say before that interview. As you know, after listening to this podcast, I've been a crazy motherfucker. I've, you know, I, I've been, you know, in, incredibly angry or resentful or, or cranky or self-involved, mean. I've been nuts. I'm a lot less nuts. But a lot of times when you don't maintain a friendship, the person you're friends with still sees you as that guy. So allowing each other to grow in a friendship is tricky. Because there's part of you that wants to be what you were when you were first friends. There's part of you that wants that. Because that's an innocent place. That's where it started. That's where the emotions were, 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 were began. And as you go through life and, and life beats you up, if you don't stay in touch, you sort of lose track of people's growth. And you tend to really, part of you just craves what you were, you know, what those emotions were. And you hold each other you know, to this vision of what you were at another time. And that's, you know, that's what stifles friendships and that's what makes them dissolve. So what you're about to hear really is, uh, is me and Louie, uh, you know, outside of talking about comedy and talking about his work, uh, really rebuilding a friendship. And I love the guy. So let's, 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 uh, let's do that. So uh, I got a chance to hang out and talk to Mark recently about this second act in his life that is podcasting. And one of the things on my mind was the difference between this medium, radio, and the looser world of the podcast. Mark actually has some radio experience, so he can talk to that point. He was a host on Air America, the now-defunct Lefty Talk Network. But he threw out the radio rulebook when he moved onto the web, where his podcast allows him to be as spontaneous, profane, and unstructured as he feels like. Sometimes I don't know a lot about who, who I'm interviewing, mm. and I don't do a lot of research, mm -hmm. but I know them mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. So I get into a position where you know, I'm talking to somebody that's got a lot of big credits, and then I'm in the middle of the interview. I'm, you know, I'm Googling them while I'm talking to them so I don't <laughs> appear rude. 
but you know, generally, you, you know, I, I want to engage with the person and I want to uh, to have a conversation. I, I, my attitude is really like, what am I going to talk to them about? Yeah, really. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, with Kevin Smith recently, I I don't really think I I have seen I had seen Clerks since it came out, and I know Kevin from his other stuff and his other appearances. I know he's a big podcaster. I know he likes to talk. I know he's a, he's an interesting guy. But literally, when he came over, I was trying to cram through Dogma. And I'd rented a bunch of his other movies. I hadn't seen them in years. So there was that issue, you know. But uh, but I also knew that he likes to talk and I like to talk. And it turned out to be a great show. You know, you said something to, to Kevin Smith, director, by the way, of Clerks. And as you say, Dogma and other movies um, that, uh, you know, again, distinguishes you from like a regular radio show, which is, you know, I haven't watched much of your stuff <laughs> or I haven't kept up with your career at all. <laughs> well, that's the thing about regular radio is yeah. that, you know, the we were we're frauds on regular radio mm. a, a, lot, mm. a lot of times because mm. the the agenda is different. The reason you have a guest nine times out of ten is because they're on a junket, they're on a tour, they're pushing some stuff, uh, you know. And then you're sort of wondering how do I get any authentic conversation out of this inter- interaction? Whereas you know, not, by by no plan, I'm, I'm really coming at it from the opposite way. It's like really, I can talk to that guy. He'll let me. Okay, great. I, I don't really know anything about him, but that's not really important. I want to talk to the guy. So it becomes a different thing. And then I get some feedback where it's like, I think you went easy on Kevin Smith. And then sometimes <laughs> the weird thing is, is that I did, there was nothing for me to attack him about, you know, other than, you know, just suggesting that some of his movies may not have done as well as he, you know, compared to others. He knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you start interrogating somebody for no real reason, then you're not, you're not going to have a conversation. You're going to put them on the defensive, whereas if you let someone talk enough, which I have the freedom to do, you can make your own judgments about their character without them breaking down or saying certain things. You can see you know, what their insecurities are. Like when somebody says, you know, I'm not an angry person, and then you know, 45 minutes later he's screaming about something, you can make those connections without me saying, like, I thought you said you weren't angry. You know, there's a lot of radio that that hosts seem to be driving conflict. Whereas, if you just give people time, you will you will get more out of them by you know actually encouraging them to talk as opposed to saying you know, well, why'd you do that? If if people feel listened to, they they will reveal themselves. You just might have to do a little more listening yourself to make your own assessment. Like when I interviewed Carlos Mencia, he didn't admit to stealing jokes. But by the end of that second hour on that second episode, you knew there was something wrong. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, again clue some of our listeners in who may not have heard that or heard about it. Carlos Mencia, uh, as a comic, has this widespread reputation for ripping off other comics material. You had him in uh, for your podcast. You interviewed him in your garage, right? Mm. Twice. Twice. Well, the first Twice. time, first time you had a really nice interview, very pleasant. And uh, by the way, I was coming at it with a certain amount of prejudice because I'd heard the same rumor, figured he was an a-hole and I wouldn't like him. And instead, I thought he was really intelligent and nice and insightful. And I smooth. ended up smooth, yeah, smart. And then you sat down after the interview and said, said to yourself, "I did. I don't think I really got enough out of him. I, something wasn't right about that interview. You know, I got played a little bit." And you invited him back for a kind of um, more of a heart-to-heart. And he didn't quite say, I steal, but he sort of admitted to being 
having issues, you know, like being, oh, he being had, a jerk to other comedians. He was wrestling with himself the whole interview. Well, yeah. What really happened was I had him in the first time to, to sort of out of empathy and, and out of the fact that I knew that he had been around as long as I had. I didn't really know him that well. And how do you live with having this horrendous, being the most hated person in comedy for a very specific reason? So my motives were sympathetic. And then I felt that he was using me in that first interview to sort of rebuild his reputation, that he was very aware of it, that he had a presentation of who he was. He had, you know, he had gone over all the possible questions because he's been dealing with this for years and he had prepared answers for them. And it bothered me. Mm. And then I'd already announced that I was going to put the interview up before, which was a mistake because people are going, where is it? And I'm like, I can't put it up like this. It, I didn't, you know, I'm only letting him use me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a platform mm -hmm. so then i started talking to other comics i talked to some latino comics and you know people who knew him i had no idea how big the issue was about him stealing how many people had had cases against him in their minds and in their hearts and then i'm like i i didn't know this stuff you know this and then i talked to a couple guys that knew him and then i called him up i said i got it i got to get more specific around this stuff i can't yeah. release the first interview yeah. we've got it we, you know we can do it on the phone uh, and then he's like, no, I'll come over now, bro. I just landed at LAX. I'll drive <laughs> right there now. And then I was nervous and they, you know, but it worked out to the point where he's an odd sort though, because most people, if anything, you come away seeing as him as a full person, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if it would have changed your mind about him, but you know, whether or not you thought he steals, it's really on you. And also, you know, whatever you think of him, you know, I got a lot of email about what people, he's got problems, whatever they mm, are. Definitely. That's probably your most famous episode because, uh, you know, you sort of crossed over from being a guy who has these really um, fun, entertaining and insightful conversations with comedians to almost being investigative journalist. You know what I mean? It happened out of necessity. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see myself as a journalist. No, but it did have a journalistic quality, which is you weren't satisfied with the truth of the answers. And a good journalist does go back. In fact, I mean, I have to say uh, there are times when I've interviewed people where I felt that they were hyping their product and that I was being just used as a mouthpiece and it really left me unsettled, but there was no way to do a follow-up. And I, I felt about that. So, you yeah, know. it happens. You know, I, it, there, there are times where I walk away from them. I mean, that episode was big for that reason. The, the Louis CK episodes were very big. The Judd Apatow episodes were very big for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that was sort of a, a, a confrontation that was done with a lot of heart with Mencia that I wasn't out to, to, to damage him. No. Uh, and then it turned into this sort of uh, psychological um, unraveling. Whereas with Judd, you know, I was, you know, I felt small and in intimidated going in there to talk to a guy that's younger than me who has this huge career. And then we found out that we had a lot of things in common. And, and then with Louis, I really went in there and really hoping we could rebuild a friendship. Yeah. Yeah. You guys had come up together. Um, Louis C.K. has really shot to, uh, you know, the highest level of uh, not only achievement, but, but, you know, sort of comedy fame right now or almost the highest level. His own show where he has complete control, the admiration of every comic I've ever talked to. Uh, and, uh, and you had stayed, what's the right word for where your career has been uh, up until recently? I don't know. You know, I've always been sort of a, a marginal character that, that everyone assumed, you know, was his own worst enemy. I, I, I haven't broken through given, and even that I've had a lot of opportunities to do that. I've been, but also I've gone, you know, way out into the wilderness too. Uh, I don't know how you would characterize it. I just haven't broke. Well, I mean, it, it seems clear in your podcast when you reflect on your own career that 
at least for a time, uh, there's been some serious jealousy of guys who sort of well, that, but that's climbed just a higher. Human thing. Very human, very human. Um, but Louis C.K. was a case of that, and that his his uh, surpassing you in fame and you know he was always ahead of me though. And the, and the jealousy was like it was it was not just about career stuff. I mean, I have career jealousy, and it's in a lot. It took me a long time just to realize that you know anyone else's opportunity is not my opportunity. Mm. But jealousy is a human thing, hmm. and it's why envy is a sin. It's been with us since the beginning. There, you know, there's no, you know, there's there's no way around it in how you handle it or what you know, uh, how you make it less about you, someone else's success. Uh, that's just part of maturing and being hmm. a, a decent person. But you know, with Louis, there was also the issues of of friendship. Like, you know, the obstacles to our friendship were not just me being jealous of him. I mean, I'd lived with that a long time. I mean, he was always, if you want to look at it as ahead of me, ahead of me. Uh, he was always, you know, able, he was always more successful than me. But there was also an element of our friendship where you have friends where you don't know if, uh, if they're your real friends because they only seem to call you sometimes or they call you when they need something or they don't really listen. Mm. I mean, all those other dynamics of a friendship were in place, but we had become you know, completely estranged for a while. And, uh, and, it was, and he was right you know, when he said that you, know, you stopped responding to me and I'd made a choice not to, but it wasn't just because of his success. So what was it besides uh, professional jealousy then? It's just, you know, friendships are difficult as you get older. I mean, you know, I have love for the guy and, and I think we have love for each other as friends. And, you know, but as you get older and your lives become very different. Sure, sure. You know, really what it was is that, you know, when he went through his divorce and stuff, you know, by the time he finally got on the phone with me to talk about his life, you know, there were, I realized there was so much I'd missed of his life. Mm. And and there was something about that that made me realize, well, you know, then what what is the friendship really? So I just sort of decided, like, like he let him have his life, and and I can't, you know, it's hard it's hard to be the guy that you get called in, you know, in, in the last lap, <laughs> and then you got to regroup, and all of a sudden they're mm. telling you stuff, and you're like, I, I had no idea. How did I, you know, I, I haven't. I mean, then I realized, like, the last time I really saw them, I was at their wedding, you know, and then you know now they got two kids. It's my own fault. But it just drifted yeah. to this point where I was, I was like, I can't, I can't engage with it right now. Mm. That was probably triggered by professional resentment. But there were other issues. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're in touch. We're good. Uh, it was, uh, I think, Gore Vidal who said, each time a friend succeeds, I die a little. That's true. I mean, it's funny. And, and there's a truth to that. But, but really, if you're thinking along those lines, you're not thinking about yourself in the right way. Mm, yeah. you know, you're using externals to, you know, to beat yourself with. You're choosing to make decisions around your perception to, to reinforce your self-pity. So, I mean, you know, those, are, those are knobs you've got to tweak at some point if you can, or at least be aware of it. Mm. Well, well, Mark, your podcast is full, like I say, of self-reflection in these monologues. Also, in the dialogues, you're, you're, you're always talking about your relationship problems, your rage problem, your self-loathing or self-reproach. I mean, a lot of stuff goes on. Is this therapy or is it something else? I don't know. You know I don't know if it's therapy. I, you know, I spent a lot of years doing comedy that was fairly heady and, 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 and the emotions of my comedy have, have evolved over the years. And then I did political comedy for a couple of years because I was involved with a political organization. I'm thrilled to be away from that mm. uh, because I just find that these type of, of, 
of personal issues, the, the, the dialogues we have in our heads, the voices we all have in our heads, are really at the, you know, and, and anyone's individual sense of entitlement or anger or, or failure or, or success, all that stuff, that, that's what people deal with. You know, the politics, you know, for most people, you know, outside of, uh, you know, how much taxes they have to pay or whether or not they get a parking ticket is really just a, a, a template that they can place over their personal problems, you know, to have a voice that is actually one step away from their personal problems. So, you know, in dealing with that, I, I just, you know, maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I, I, I certainly have narcissistic tendencies, but these are the things that, that consume me. So is it therapy? In the sense, the monologues aren't necessarily therapy. Those are more me, you know, talking to the listener in in, in trying to find a common bond. And you know, are you like this? Am I the only one here? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are you know, am I? I'm sharing this because I'm hoping I'm not the only one here. And I think that talking to other people in terms of it um, helping me, well, yeah, because you know, I had I had gone through my second divorce. I I had been you know sort of marginalized by by uh, the fact that I had done radio and gotten out of, uh, and I wasn't getting booked as a comic. I was just a marginal character in in some ways. And also I was seen as this like intimidating, kind of self-hating, uh, brooding thing. <laughs> so I was really cut off from people. And, and, but when I was a kid, I was never like that. I was always the kid that was, you know, hanging out with freaks and homeless people and talking to everybody and wanted to integrate socially. I liked being around people that, that I saw as interesting and, and, mm-hmm. and I liked listening to them. I worked at a, a restaurant across from the University of New Mexico when I was in high school and all these uh, crazy people and homeless people would come in and I'd, you know, give them free coffee and listen to them. And I was really all embracing of, of other people and, and, and actually because of my lack of boundaries, I, I, I really looked to other people to define me, to, you know, I needed to use crazy people as a battery for my own sense of self, which makes sense. My father's, you know, manic depressive. So, so what ultimately started to happen with, with the conversations I had with people was that I got reengaged with the fact that, you know, I love comedy. I love listening to people's stories. I like laughing. I, I like hanging around like-minded people. Uh, and, and I like talking to people and that just on a personal level had, evaded me for years out of my own bitterness and and so if it's therapy in any way it's just that by talking to people for at least an hour twice a week who who i'm kindred spirits with or friends or interested Mm, in mm. you know i have sort of rounded off a bit as a human being so so to use a phrase that you use a lot have you become an adult as part of uh this process i'm I'm getting there i mean (laughs) i you know emotionally Am I an adult? A lot of things. Like obviously, I I've made it this far, and I dress properly, and I and I <laughs> and I own a home. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I would have owned a home had I not, you know, been with somebody who told me that you can use money to buy homes, <laughs> and you didn't need all the money at once. That there mm. were things called banks where you could get a loan. <laughs> Literally, I was a guy that never carried any debt, and I just if I had money, I'd just stick it in the bank and know that it was there because I knew what I did for a living, and I didn't know when that mm. would go away. I think what I'm becoming is a, a better human being. I, I don't know if I'm becoming an adult emotionally. I still have some work on that. And I don't have children of my own. So the, the necessity of selflessness is not there. Uh, there. There are some liabilities around being a single man with no children out in the world that are sort of stunting to the possibilities of, of becoming an adult. But I'm working on it. Well, Mark, uh, when I came in, you were busy uh, on your laptop 
responding to all kinds of uh, incoming offers. And, uh, I don't know. I was responding to <laughs> fan mail and, and a few incoming offers. Okay, okay. But, but you know, I, I want to say, too, um, that I started to go after this interview with you right before the latest wave of attention started, I think, with a, a Rolling Stone um, mention as, like, one of the top ten, what, fun, funny things funny things of the year. For 2011. And then the New York Times article, which, yeah. even in this day and age of a, you know, sort of um, failing mainstream media, is important. It's very important to... And they to, did a uh, video on you and everything. Yeah, that was fun. On your podcast. Yeah. Did they ever write about you as a com- comedian? Not in a long time, and not only because I was part of something that was happening, not because of me. Uh, they wrote an article on the alternative comedy scene, I guess in the mid '90s, uh, that I was part of uh, down uh, below, uh, down on Ludlow Street in New York City, the Luna, the Luna Lounge period. And they also there was a review of my um, my show Jerusalem Syndrome in 2000, 2000 year two thousand. Uh, the New York Times did a review of that, mm, mm. but no, not since then, no. Mm. And uh, and uh, you know, I think when you started, is it true that you had to sort of seek out interviewees, and now people are coming to you saying, "Hey, I'd like to be on your show." Some people, I mean, it still is sort of a, a daunting experience. I mean, now it's becoming like there's a standard to it that, like, you know, if you go on Marin's show, uh, you know, it's it's going to get real, which you know, I don't I don't necessarily think is true. Uh, I mean, it will get real, but that you know, I don't need. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be disturbing. I've done many interviews with people that it, it really, I'm just looking for authentic conversation. So I, I don't think everyone's rushing to, uh, to do it out of, out of some intimidation. But, you know, I do do live ones as well, which are a little funner. And, and some people, um, some people are, are, are requesting, uh, you know, to, to come on, but, but not, not droves. Not yet. Not yet. I but, don't know. But, but ideas and offers are starting to sort of percolate. I mean, I'm yeah. guessing. Uh, yes. Television, maybe something. There's something I'm working on with uh, a production company uh, with a little bit of money from Fox Studios to to build a, 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 a like a single camera type world around my life that would be you know elevated a little bit. It would be you know uh, probably scripted and partially in, improvised, uh, but using real interview footage. But it really, it's just about my life which the fact is i have celebrities come to my garage uh-huh. so and that's not i'm not making that up they do they, <laughs> they come to my but it would be room. that element of your life well it'd be my life but that'd be what i was doing okay okay so so maybe oh God. little pieces of the interview here and there interspersed with vignettes of my life that were um fictionalized or, or dramatized mm-hmm. or or uh comedicized or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but it, it's um it feels like something's breaking and um your dad, who I guess maintains an interest in your success, sent you a letter. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. Re- you read it on your show. Could I play a clip of that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is you reading your letter from your dad. So, subject line, just re-New uh, York Times Rolling Stone. Super achievement. Good for you. Keep the momentum rolling now while you have the real health energy. Okay. The national comedic spotlight and the rapid developing fame. The sincere earthly goodwill and love of fellow man, dot, dot, dot. And then all caps, other projects are mentioned. Go for them now, dot, dot, dot. Back to regular text. Line up your support names and priorities. The rich, the famous, the connected by literary connections. Does he mean fictional characters? Theatrical connections, etc. dot, dot, dot. So you can, all caps, rapidly know and organize, all caps, your camp. I'm putting together a camp and move forward, dot, dot, dot. The, all caps, iron is hot, strike, 
More caps. You worked hard for these moments. You deserve every break and a first crack at every opportunity. Dot, dot, dot. Still all caps. Talk show host on primetime, comma, etc. Back to regular. Life is good, but for a very short time. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and the public is fickle to all professionals. Comedy, showbiz, medicine, dot, dot, dot. We grow old and out of touch with the big, powerful influences quickly, dot, dot, dot. Get them committed, all caps, now! Back to normal. By interview comments on the WWW, that would be the World Wide Web, I believe, TV, podcasts, or in the media. He who hesitates is lost easily, all caps. Now go for it! Back to normal. You should now have, all caps, inexpensive access to the best theatrical advertising, dot, 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 all caps, the best in product endorsement, dot, 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 etc. dot, 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 the moment is yours, dot, 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 command it. Back to regular text. Love, Dad. Mark Maron's dad talking to Mark about his imminent success. Sure. Uh, it was hilarious. Uh, the, the letter... Or is it email uh, with block letters and yeah. uh, great phrases? You know, mm-hmm. the moment is yours. Command it. Oh yeah, uh, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but does it feel a bit like he's he's right that there is some maybe some potential change that's for the better, like as a result of success? I don't know what he sees. <laughs> you know, because I just did Conan, and uh, yeah, afterwards he said, uh, "Yeah, it's great, right? I mean, it seems to me that uh, maybe." Uh, who knows? Maybe you could replace him. Like when he goes away, you could fill in. <laughs> like he's just never quite enough. And, you know. Well, you you actually um, you and I'm not being a, a you know sort of fawning uh, fanboy to say this. I thought you really kicked ass on Conan oh, the thanks. other night. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Uh, the storytelling, uh, you just sat there. Conan didn't have to do anything. I mean, you're like the he perfect, likes that. You're like the perfect <laughs> guest. No, you are. I mean, he he just he chips in with a smile or a very brief remark, but you were just... Well, you got to realize, I, I I mean, I go back a lot of years with him yeah, as a yeah, guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was a, a, a recurring guest on the, you know, at, at NBC. And, you know, like four times a year, three or four times a year. And I was sort of a go-to guy, like if they got stuck... You know, they'd come have me sit down and talk. And we have a relationship, him and I, that, that exists on camera. Mm. I don't, we don't socialize. Oh, you don't? No. But he did agree to come to the garage yeah, at the end. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. But, like, you know, he's become very good and uh, at at doing you know, what he does. You know, he knows how to, to carry a show. He knows how to get a laugh. He knows, and, and, and to see him grow as I've grown has been interesting and good. Like, I, I didn't, I wasn't being, uh, sliding in, in in saying that he doesn't like to do his job but you know he he has learned over time to to let me talk anyways and, mm. and when he does come in it's 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 always perfect it's always a, a good balance and but for me it was very emotional it was a- actually very emotional because i was very loyal to him uh whether anyone knows it you know, in show business it's a weird thing but I, I i i never tried to do craig ferguson i never tried to do jay leno i didn't care you know it, i i was a letterman guy even though you know i've only done letterman four times in my career and they don't happen often but you know conan was always good to me and i didn't see any reason to do any competing shows and and i wouldn't in my mind not that they'd even care uh and then when he went to the tonight show i didn't you know i didn't get i wasn't on the docket i didn't get on and in retrospect, it was good because, you know, he was uncomfortable. You know, it was a, you know, it was a hard time for him. It was a hard time to define the show. And, you know, I might have eventually gotten on, but my feelings were a little hurt. 
Uh, and then I ended up doing Ferguson. And it, like in my mind, it was like, fine, if they love it, I'm just going to do this other one. You know, and I hadn't been on TV in a long time. And I did Ferguson. It was actually good. Um, but not, but it was weird because, you know, I, you know, I used to go to Conan and I, you know, I'd go to my dressing room, you know, Jimmy Bavino would give me a guitar to play. I knew all the writers, you know, they were always happy to see me. Like, and it, like I did that for 12 years. I mean, I was there in the first year that they were on and I was on every year that he was on. And then, you know, Conan gets this show and I go have a meeting with, uh, the head of his production company, David Kissinger. You know, just to talk. I seem to be taking a lot of meetings with executives, apparently, so they can just tell me how much they like my podcast. <laughs> and uh, but he's a wonderful guy. I've known him for years. He's you know he's been uh, you know, he used to be at Universal. He's been other places, but a very sweet man. And but I go to this new set, and I've not I have not been offered a date on the show. And I'm walking around. You know, I'm walking around the set uh of the new conan show and you know there's jimmy vivino there's frank smiley's dan ferguson you know jp buck jeff uh you know jeff ross the producer i, I know everybody and i'm oh. like i'm getting choked up <laughs> you know because i'm like you know i'm like i don't know I'm gonna be uh -huh. you know but i literally i got emotional mm. i mean genuinely i you know i was i i was i i was you know i was i was sad and i just i felt it felt weird you know uh you, you know it was um because that's just in my mind, I I I couldn't understand it. I'm like, I don't know when I'm coming. Mm. It's good to see you. You know, mm. I, I know all those guys. Yeah. And then uh, you know when the um, you know when we got the offer, you know, I was like, you know, I, I was excited, and you know, and I, I and I and I you know I was a little you know overwhelmed, but I was emotional again, you know. So because and now Andy's back, you know. So I'm going back into this environment. You know, and I have a history with these. I know these guys. I've sat on television with these guys a lot, and uh, underneath all, all of the uh, of the appearance of the of being on the show was like it, it was like it was a, like some sort of emotional reunion for me. Like there was a point there, where I think I just like just looked at Andy. And I just patted him on the shoulder, you know, and 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 Conan was like, okay, and then uh, you know, and then we told the story, but. But, you know, we, you know, when the cameras go down, you know, just like always, I'm like, so, you know, I said to Conan, you know, you're doing great. You know, I'm really, I'm really happy for you. He's like, oh, I'm okay. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, I got my thing too. You know, I got my issues too. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, uh, but we've always been that way. You know, it's always been that way with him and I. And Andy has been on the show and I love Andy. And uh, Conan said he'd come on the show and I, you know, I hope we can make that happen. I got, he didn't give me his email address. Yeah, forgot to get his phone number when I left, but I think I'll find him. It's interesting to me uh, that your podcast not only has this avid following among comedy nerds, people who love to hear about comedy, but even in the industry. That's what I hear. And I, well, you know, they say everybody listens to it uh, in the comedy biz, and uh, I, I suppose that a large number do. Um, do you find that even though it's like a homemade medium, even though it really doesn't, I imagine it doesn't pay very much, uh, you sit in the garage. Are there people in the mainstream higher echelons who sort of envy your freedom or envy what you get to do on that podcast while they're stuck on a strict format show? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't assume what they want. I do, I do think that sometimes they think like, you know, you know Marin's doing his own thing. Yeah. You know, like he would never do that. He's doing his own garage thing. You know, I do. Try me. I do some other stuff. Yeah. He's an artist. Don't hey, bother him. Right. There, I, I think there's some of that, you know. Uh, but you'd be happy to sell out if you could. I don't. Uh, I don't know what it would mean. <laughs> like, there's no reason to sell out the podcast. I like it the way it is. Would there be a line though if you got an offer that was just really not up to your standards as a comedian that you'd say no if it was good money and a and and a life? Oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah. What sort of things? 
there are there there are jobs and mm. there there are TV gigs that yeah. I, I I've said no to. Um, like years ago, there was a book that, that someone wanted me to write as a reaction to this book that that, that was written about all these conservatives, like the hundred worst you know liberals. Someone mm, wrote mm, that, mm-hmm. and some they wanted to write an, uh, a, a response to that. And I'm like, oh, what I, yeah, I, I couldn't. You know, I don't want to have my name on that. Right. Um, you know, on another level, like early on when Chelsea Handler first got her show. You know, she had taped the same night as I did on uh, my Comedy Central, my last Comedy Central half hour, which was a, a, a Comedy Central Presents 2006. Right. The bill was her and I. They did two tapings, you know, separate half hours. And uh, I had interviewed her once when I worked in radio. And when she got that show, you know, uh, this is pride stuff. This is not integrity stuff. You know, it's a fine line. <laughs> I want to hear yeah. about integrity. <laughs> well, I mean, but there, there's a lot of what people call integrity is is really pride ego yeah and uh you know they, they and she said you know my old management was like you want to do this chelsea handler show i'm like no i'm not doing <laughs> her show. i'm not why would i do her show mm. and now really it's like the the best show for a comic mm. to do mm. but yeah and, and I, you know i would do the show now because i think i would you know i understand it it's got its own you know legs and you know i can write jokes like that i used to love doing tough crowd with colin quinn uh, I like doing panel shows because it forces me to write about specific things. I like having deadlines. Uh, other things that I've turned down. Um, well, fortunately, it's easy to maintain your integrity if no one's offering to buy it. So <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a ton of stuff. But there's going to be more though. You get to say no to some projects, I imagine. I, I just don't like if yeah. I don't like. It's like even like it's like with the like with the improvs, like the comedy chain, like. I find them to be incredibly unfair to comedians in, in terms of mm. if you don't sell tickets, mm. which I'm starting to do now, uh, you know, they, the, what they offer you to, to perform in their clubs is insulting. Mm. And, you know, there's this idea where, like, at another time in my career, even though it, it happened and I turned it down then, you know, the, they offer. And I'm like, why, you know, why would I do that? And literally in my head, it's like, I've made it this far without that. Mm. And I'm doing okay. Mm. Why do I need mm. to do that now mm-hmm. if, it, if I find it insulting? Mm. That's really the question I ask myself in terms of integrity. Uh, it, but like I said, it's not like the offers are rolling in. Mm. And, and fortunately for me, you know, out of desperation and passion, this thing you know, seems to have worked. And uh, the TV thing that I'm working on uh, is honoring what I am and what I'm doing. Uh, it, it's just taken me a long time for people to just get the whole package of me. I think it's taken me a long time for me to sort of fill that package. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't really have any regrets. Mm. You know, I think I got a lot of opportunities in the past that I wasn't ready to follow through on. Yeah. Uh, it, because I just wasn't fully baked. You know, I wasn't, you know, fully me. I think my entire process has been to to try to be myself in, in a way that I felt comfortable with. And I think that's just, you know, now happening in the last couple of years. Um, I'd like to play a little bit of one of your opening monologues from the podcast. Um, I could pick any number of them that would show your style, but I think I'll pick the one that you did before uh, interviewing Mike Birbiglia, where you talk a little bit about, you know, having had some friction with him, having had some hard feelings. Yeah, I don't really remember it, but I'll listen to it now, too. You know, there's a spike gallery in my head, and there are people been, whose, whose pictures have been hanging in the spike gallery for, for years. You know, John Stewart, he's got uh, his own room in the spike gallery. Uh, you know, Louis C.K., my dear friend, who knows, you know, he knows, he knows how I feel. You know, he's got a few places in the Spike Gallery. Mike Perbiglia, uh has a few pictures up in the Spike Gallery. Uh, there are others. 
uh, n- none that I can think of right offhand, but they're just certain people that you judge yourself against. Uh, and I don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, the thing with John Stewart was paralyzing to me for years because I thought we were similar. I thought we were charming. I thought we, uh, you know, we're funny. We're Jewish. We're smart. And he was so such a huge success. And there was a period there where he would be on all of these magazines and everything else. And it was just I could not walk down the street without uh, his you face, uh, just you know, on newsstands. It was ridiculous. So. How do we get over this? We just got to let it go. Let love in. Is that the deal? I just don't. You know, I hope this goes well with Mike because, uh, you know, I got to get over this stuff. And he's definitely one of these dudes I got to make, uh, you know, I got to apologize to for being a dick. Mark Marin talking about uh, Mike Birbiglia right before he interviewed him on his podcast, WTF. Um, do you write any notes? Do you script? You don't script anything. I mean, but do you write anything down at all or do you just go? I write things. Let's see. Like that. Okay, so you scribble a few words, and that's I enough. scribble things, you know, and uh, I have bullet points, kind of, but not really. Yeah, like my process in the monologues is like I start pacing around my house. I start dreading, like I gotta go out there in the garage. <laughs> Do you cut like, them? Do you cut them afterwards? No, no, I don't. So they're uncut. And they, For the most part, I mean, there's some work done on it, but I don't do it. But they really hold together, and um, I work with somebody that does it. Okay, maybe a little bit of manicuring, but not much. Yeah, it's usually just for flow, or if yeah. something doesn't fit together. Right. Um, I think that's a rare uh, ability um, to address an unseen, invisible, not present audience. Uh, that's a, lot, a big transition for me. Yeah, a lot of people can talk to a living audience, and all the energy comes from being seen, from being in the presence of people, and things start flowing. But to be there when you know you don't have to do it, you know you can stop at any time, you know you can start over. How do you, you know, is it just something you, you, you had? No. No? <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, despite whatever difficulties there was in the management model of Air America, the fact that I entered that world having no radio experience and was able to get a hands-on um, training program uh, in radio by running their morning show mm-hmm. and working with some radio professionals, uh, I, I would not have known how to do that. The, the yeah. day that I learned how to own a mic solo was a huge breakthrough. Now, now, I should say that for me, at least, there's a huge difference between talking to an actual audience that you don't see but is still there in a live broadcast and talking to a tape recorder. No, it's tricky. Yeah. You know, it, it's not a normal it, – it's, it's a unique skill. It is. But I knew the guys who did it. I knew it was doable. I knew there was a, a, just a jump I had to make in my head. But the day I made it, it was like, it was like being you know, born again. It was like – now, now I know how to do this. Well, well, do you put yourself in a state? I mean, is there anything you can describe that, that was that threshold you crossed into that ability? I don't know what it is. I just, it has something to do with, I like having headphones on. Uh-huh. And I like them to be loud. And when I start on the mic, it, I, I kind of know where I'm going to start. And sometimes I know where I'm going. But usually what happens with me is, I'm just processing the thoughts as they come to my head so that the connection between my brain and my mouth just becomes lucid Mm, mm. and I just follow it Mm. and I continue talking. And over time, I've grown to know that there are places to pause, that silence is okay for a minute, that when you do radio or you do this type of talking, 
that you don't have to rush necessarily. Fill every vacuum. But you do have to be present. Yeah. Like a vacuum is only a vacuum if you take your focus away. So the focus remains. And that's how people like Rush Limbaugh is very good at it. And there, there are some people that are very good at it. You know, Ira is good at it, in, in, uh, but it's a different method. Very. That, you know, where, you, where you know, he sort of underplays things and, and lets the space kind of, um, you know, move your heart. Where Rush will, will stop for effect and then plow. And then you know, there, there are people that talk so, that do solo mic work where you, you realize that the pauses are almost more important than the talking in terms of, of creating an emotional space in someone's head. For sure. By the way, speaking of mics, you got a couple big P-pops there. So if you could just like drop it just a yeah, tiny bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. I know. Um, You're someone... going to leave that in, aren't you? Uh, should I? Yeah, I'll just leave it in. Yeah. That's very, it was kind of, uh, it was nice coming from the, the old pro <laughs> telling me about my P-pop. Hey, listen, I got the headphones on. I'm hearing them. Okay. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, silence. Yeah, another person who uses silence quite well, I think, on his show is Harry Shearer. He'll... Pause. Yeah, he's great. Harry's great. A lot. And he, he said he learned that from listening to Paul Harvey, mm-hmm. who would pause and then say something and then wait. And during that pregnant silence, but I, I as an audience member, I'm hearing the person think, think, and then come out. I mean, the tension is really cool. People who are really comfortable yeah. on the mic doing all the t- do it all the time. Yeah. Phil Hendry. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the guys that live on the mic, they, they, they don't mind it. They don't mind making you wait mm-hmm. as they figure it out i like harry too he's very good on the radio yeah yeah uh and you know it's interesting his is a real radio show not a podcast even though the distinction i think is breaking down but he with all of his gigs his acting and voice gigs holds on to that show does it week in week out never virtually never repeats i mean almost never does it in hotel rooms um and as he travels around the world and i asked him you know why have you kept it up all these years? Because it's all his. Because it's his. No one can touch it. I feel the same way. And by the way, I don't listen to Rush. I just <laughs> noticed that. About so you Rush. didn't hear his Hu Jintao imitation I don't, the other day? I, honestly, I don't listen to anything. I yeah. keep NPR at home. I keep it on. Right. I listen to KCRW uh, in the house mm-hmm. and in the car. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if I'm not listening to that, general, generally I listen to music. Right, right. So you don't listen to other podcasts? Not much. Uh-huh. Um, a question I want to ask you is one that people have asked me uh, based on doing interviews and one that I ask myself all the time, which is, what is this space that gets created uh, between, say, two people and some microphones that prompts them or allows them to say stuff that's intensely private that maybe they, in some cases, haven't even told people who know them well? It happens, I think, on your show. What's going on there? What do you think? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just the way I do it. You know, I listen. There are guys I like a lot. You, you know, I, I like, you know, Doug Benson, Jimmy Pardo. Uh, these guys are funny guys. Jimmy Pardo is a, a great personality, uh, you know, on, on his podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are Always other, not funny, it's called. Uh, never not never funny. Never not funny. Yeah. And Doug's just funny. You know, Always his, not and, funny would be a very bad name. Yeah, very bad. <laughs> But yeah, this is the kind of radio I've chosen to do. So yeah. when a radio guy once said I do the naked format. Yeah, yeah. But I think for me, you know, because I do that and I talk openly and I, and I don't hide much, that, you know, guests want to meet me halfway. And a lot of times if it's the best thing that can happen is they forget that they're talking mm. on a microphone. Mm. And I think what Judd Apatow said in the Times piece is true is that 
you, you just don't you don't think anyone's going to hear it. <laughs> You're still in my garage. You know, I, that's the way I think about it, too. I, I don't I can't really I don't check my numbers. I don't you know, I don't really know what's going on right now. I don't know how many people are listening to my podcast as you and I are doing this interview. I don't think about that stuff. I can't get hung up on it because when it comes you know, down to it, I'm still booking my own guests and I'm still you know, I have to show up in the garage you know, to, to be an active listener, uh, to, you know, to share my own private thoughts and that's my job. So I like whatever's going on in the world. If I'm number one on iTunes, I will look at that occasionally, which mm-hmm. is really the, not even the, the, an honest indicator of, of anything other than, you know, they aggregate numbers, but I get hung up on that sure, for some sure. reason because it's immediate and I can go there and look and, but I don't look at my real numbers. I don't, uh, I just, I don't want to get caught up in that because on some level it's, it's someone uh, said it was similar to writing. You know, when you're writing a book, you don't think about who's reading it. Like when I go out there, I, I still know that I'm like, I'm in my house. I just made some mm. coffee. Mm. I'm trying to get the, you know, my brain together and get into the state of mind where I can, you know, I figure out what I'm going to talk about and, you know, I kind of get myself worked up and then I go out there and that's it. You say that people forget to have a microphone and yet your, your uh, method, which we're using right now is to actually have, your interviewee hold the microphone, and it's right in front of their face. Yeah, it's... but these are comedians. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I, I mean, I do the same thing with my audience. You, you, you know, I don't know why I reveal certain things to them. And I've said to audiences, I just don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> and I think in the moment that I say it, I mean it. Most of the people that I talk to spend a lot of time in front of a microphone. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not playing for the microphone right now. I'm talking to you. Right, right. Uh, I don't, I, I'm, I, the, the skills of being on a microphone are that I'm trying not to interrupt you. I'm trying not to say, you know, and, uh. Oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. Why? Because I'm getting a lot of you knows? No, no, not at all. Not at all. But I've just become aware of that because, like, there are certain skills on, mic skills that are radio that I, my, my tendency is to, you know, and, uh, and keep moving through pauses. So, I mean, there's still things I'm learning and I'm trying to make myself aware of. Uh, you know, you reminded me of uh, someone you've interviewed, and I've interviewed a number of times um, over the years, Jonathan Ames, who uh, my listeners will probably remember from a couple of interviews I've done with him, who has done a lot of stuff in his life that is uh, what most people would consider intensely embarrassing stuff, mm. right? That was his thing. His thing, absolutely. He called himself uh, the George Plimpton of the colon at mm. one point. Yeah. But it involves sexual stuff and all kinds of things. And he'd write about it, you know, for a fairly large audience. Yeah. And I asked him about it, um, and he said, oh, don't talk about that. And I said, what do you mean, don't talk about that? I mean, you wrote about it. Yeah, but I don't imagine anybody's really reading it when I write it. How he ha- could psychologically imagine that when he's writing, say, for the New York press back in the day or for a book, that no one's really listening and it will never come back to haunt him you know, through the questions of a radio interviewer like me is, is, is kind of amazing to me. I think that's smart, though. I mean, I think I, that's the same reason I would have. If I, I've talked to him, and he seems to be done with that stuff on some level. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he wants to move past it Yeah, well, he told a you, bit. He told you what – I'm interrupting here. I know it's bad form, but he told you a story that was one of the, the absolute topper, I think, of all of the stories that I've ever heard him tell, which was – this piece of performance art that he did with a, a friend oh, of his. The Mangina? Yes, and where he ends up getting violated by the guy's leg stump mm. as part of this performance. Yeah. And it was, uh, I'm making it sound grotesque, but it was hilarious in the telling. Yeah, I think it's good. Because he had a good attitude. Hilariously grotesque. <laughs> yeah, but like you said, he, he did that for a long time, but I think there, you know, now he's, 
he's in he's in a different world with uh, with bored to death, bored to and, death his show, and with yeah. some of the stuff that he's yeah. uh, working on. And I think he's sort of relieved about that because I think that despite the the kind of desperation and immediacy that drove him to write about all that discomfort, you know, that was all very honest. But I think he always saw himself as kind of a, a more of a literary figure. Mm -hmm. And I think that he's you know, really kind of doing something different for himself with Bored to Death. And I, cause I, I remember talking to him and, and I, either he said it or I got the sense where to, where he's like, yeah, I'd like to keep some things personal. Man. <laughs> like, like I couldn't go and divulge information about a breakup I was going through on the air out of the, out of respect for the woman that I was in the relationship with and listeners were like, what do you mean you're not going to tell? Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the uh, turn you did on Conan just the other night no, that was, was a long story about a, a sexual relationship. That was her. It, but she had heard that before. Oh. But I've since, we've since broken up and it got a little, you know, a little gnarly. And I knew I would tell it eventually. <laughs> but, you know, I had to give it a little time. Right, right, right. But uh, at some point you had to let go of... Um Worrying too much about her feelings, I imagine, because the story she comes off as is 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 potentially borderline psycho. No, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I mean, you had to sort of say, okay, I'm going to tell. She this knew story. that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess that's sort of par for the course if you get involved with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine anybody who gets involved with a guy like you has to know that they're they're giving over their private life to uh, to a hungry well, public. Yeah, I'll own my side of it. <laughs> um. We talked to a little bit about you and adulthood and how that's something you seem to be wrestling with aloud, making that transition. But on the other hand, part of what makes you funny is coming out of immaturity, I think, in some way. Do, yeah. you, do you really want to become an adult? Well, I think I am an adult, but I think that the, the life I've chosen for myself, the responsibilities involved in it are, are different than adult responsibilities that I'm fairly selfish. So I think in that there's a fine line between being selfish and being childish. I mean, it's part of being childish, but being childishly selfish as an adult is not that appealing. So I, I hope that my selfishness is at least relatable and not just, you know, some sort of arrested development. <laughs> well, I was thinking of an episode um, that you recounted on, on your podcast, um, uh, you could tell me how long ago this was. I don't think it was that long ago. It was about a plane flight you took and being oh, yeah. seated next to the former head of the Republican National yeah. Committee. Yeah. Ken Melman. Right? Yeah. Okay. So this is a great story for a couple of reasons. It's funny. Uh, it's naughty. And it also demonstrates where we've come, you know, with Internet time and the way things move around. Do you want to tell her? Or should I just like summarize it? Well, I was on a plane I'd upgraded to business class and the guy who sat next to me was Ken Melman who I recognized because I did political talk radio for two years yeah I imagine most people wouldn't even recognize him but I knew him to be the guy who run he ran the 2004 Bush campaign he was the head of the GOP uh and uh, the chair of the GOP I think is what you call it right yeah um see I don't even have that right I thought it was RNC but whatever oh yeah the RNC Republican yeah. National Committee yeah, right yeah so I knew who he was. I knew he was a bad guy. Yeah, he's an evil guy. And I, I wasn't even quite up to speed on the news that he had come out of the closet, like, you know, literally days before I saw him. So I'm on a plane, and I had Wi-Fi on the plane, and I'm online, and I, you know, I you know, emailed Sam Cedar, who I used to work in political talk radio with, and we had a show together. I'm like, what's the story on Melman? What should I ask him? I, you know, like, I needed my producer. I need a producer here. You know, I'm in a position to break news. 
And uh, and then I was told that he just came out and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I got to do something about this. And then yeah, he's sitting right next to me and he doesn't see what I'm doing. And then at some point he goes, uh, so you got online, huh? And we're talking, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I wonder if I should. I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty good. And, and then it, it dawns on me that I should talk to him. So like in a real way. So I introduced myself. I told him who I was. I was at Air America. And then you know, I started uh, talking to him about uh, the Bush administration, about Dick Cheney, about this and that. And then I started tweeting about it, you know, as he was reading his own magazine. You know, I started tweeting, you know, and I started tr- I started saying things like paraphrasing Melman. Uh, it was not an inside job, but, but, you know, like, but, but I was, the thing I come away with, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but so here I am tweeting this and I'm on the, you know, I tweeted that I was on the plane with him and then, you know, I got something going and it's in live tweet, live Twitter. And then he falls asleep. So I didn't, uh, for some reason, the only thing I could think to do to a sleeping, you know, Ken Melman was, you know, tilt my computer so you could see him next to me sleeping. And I took my shirt off and just showed my nipples. And I was like, eh, you know, and I tweeted that. Sort of unflattering. Yes. The whole thing was unflattering. <laughs> So that's what I tweeted. And then all of a sudden, you know, within like half an hour, it breaks on Gawker <laughs> while we're still in the air. And and then like I know because it breaks on Gawker that when we land, oh, you know, his people are going to have informed him that. He's got a Blackberry. Sure. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is great. So then I email my friend Brendan and I say, look, dude, uh, when we land, I'm going to get on the phone with you immediately. <laughs> and, and this is what's happening. And you're just going to stay on the phone with me so I don't have to confront this situation. So we land. And sure enough, my phone goes on. His phone goes on. And within seconds, I see my nipples on his Blackberry screen. <laughs> and then I call, you know, Brendan. I'm like, yeah, hey, what's up, man? Sure. Uh-huh. It's happening right now. Uh-huh. We're doing it. <laughs> Uh, just, uh, you know, I just started to start, you know, buying time, <laughs> but he played it like a pro. I mean, God knows, you know, to be in the Bush administration for, and, and in the GOP as long as he has, you know, he knows how to you know take a hit. He didn't say a word, but it's a very long taxi in. So, so my question for you is, um, definitely no, no arguing that's funny, but was it mature? No, it's definitely immature. <laughs> and in, in retrospect, because I wasn't being journalistic enough and because mm. I didn't mm. know my, you know, my instincts were, were, were immature is that, you know, I had an opportunity there yeah. before I identified myself, you know, out of curiosity to ask him whether or not he regretted anti-gay policy that he supported and championed, you know, in, in the Bush administration. Right, right. That's the question for sure. That was the question yes. that I might have been able to get an answer yeah. to as a civilian, but I chose to show my nipple. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So Woodward and Bernstein, you are not. We've concluded that. Um, what do you see yourself doing? Uh, ten, fifteen years. Ten, fifteen years. What about ten, fifteen minutes? <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, you know, I I don't know. I'd like to write this book. I want to keep doing this. Is this autobiographical? I'm sure, isn't it? Everything I do. Well, yeah. My but interviews? I mean, is it? Is it? Is it? Is it you know, a memoir. I mean, is it, here's how I started. I think you have elements of that. Uh-huh. I, you know, I don't know how it's going to be broken up, but yeah. it's certainly going to be about, you know, me and my thinking. Oh, I look forward to it, man. Yeah. I, what do I see myself doing? I, you know, I want to keep building the stand up. I mean, this is the first time in my career that people, I, there's some awareness of who I am, that I have people that listen to the podcast that never knew about me before the podcast that don't know that I do comedy. So they come out and they're like, oh my God, he knows how to do this. I mean, that's what I did. I'm a comic. <laughs> that's what I've always done. I do it all the time. Uh, so that's been actually for the first time in my life. I'm 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 relatively fearless, and uh, I have a lot of material, and I enjoy doing stand up, and it's a good time to see me. So I you know I do stand up. 
I'd like to continue doing this. I'd love to try to figure out a way to do uh, an intimate talk show on television. Mm. I'd like to act a bit, too. I mean, there's a lot of things I'd like to do. What do I see myself doing? Given my brain, I see myself... <laughs> You know, maybe in a in a, maybe a slightly better garage, <laughs> two car garage <laughs> instead of a single car garage, it might slide down a mountain. Okay, Mark, that's a, that's a, that's a real nice note to end on. Actually, is uh, Mark Marin in the big two car garage still doing the podcast? Yeah, with the same amount of clutter. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank Thanks you. a lot for having me. And you can learn more about Mark Marin at markmarin.com. He spells his name M A R C. M-A-R-O-N. You can also catch his WTF podcast on iTunes. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Visit us on the web, why don't you, at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll be back next week. Music